All right, everybody, thank you for joining us, everyone here in the room and everyone online. <laughs> All right, I'm actually remembering to record it this time. I hated that I missed last week because I know I'll never probably talk about predestination again. <laughs> it just won't come up. Um, if you have not been to worship yet and you're going at 11, the soloist is worth the price of admission. I mean, it will. She should have, we should have her sing for the sermon and then we should have her sing again. It's, it's incredible. So you have a lot to look forward to. Let's start with prayer. Gracious God, be with us, we pray. As we talk about Christ and the church and what we believe, it is our prayer that we would be strengthened in our belief in your love and goodness, and that we would be transformed to serve you in the world. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So I was telling someone we had a session retreat um, this weekend. So all of my notes for this are made on the kitchen notepad. So you'll forgive me if I'm just a little unorganized. But what I want to start with is if someone were, and you can just shout out your answers. If someone were to ask you, what is the one sure thing you know about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, what would it be? What's that? They're one. Yes. Huh? Love. Yep. Love. Anything else? Roy? Uh, I agree with all of your love. So last week I told you that um, in seminary they got t-shirts printed up that said love them all and let God sort them out. This morning, Roy told me kill them all and let God sort them out. <laughs> I just want to tell on him. Um, <laughs> okay, so first of all, we, what we're talking about today is the idea of judgment and what happens after life. Okay, so that study of what happens after life is called eschatology. It's the study of the end things, literally. I think it's the, the Latin uh, kind of translation. There is nothing more contested in all of Christianity than the theories of what happens after life, eschatology. Um, there is not strong agreement on eschatology. And so what I am saying to you is that there isn't a clear heresy. Do you know what I mean? It's not if you say that you believe in universalism, which is the idea that um, I'm watching the folks try to get out the door. It keeps locking on her. Can you get out, honey? I know it takes it a minute to reset. I'm sorry. Um, all right. So there's the theory of universalism, which says that um, God in some way will offer salvation to everyone either before they die or afterwards. Everyone will be saved. That's one theory. The theory that I think I probably grew up with in my grandparents' Baptist church was you either were saved and you would be, you will go to heaven or you would go to hell. Okay. And that's another theory. Um, and so there's no clear consensus because no one's come back to report afterwards, right? We don't know what those answers are. So I think the best way to approach any of these questions or debates in the Christian tradition is ask yourself what you're actually sure of. 
for me, what I am sure of is that the essential character of God is loving and gracious. So for me, everything that I think about or read about is filtered through that lens because A, scripture gives lots of support for that. And B, it is my experience. My experience of God is that God is loving and gracious. The greatest truth of my life is that God knows me completely and loves me anyway. Okay, so that's my basic operating system, right, that we'll begin from. Um, I want to talk about the idea of hell and how we've seen it developed over the years. And then I want to go back and talk about judgment. Okay, so um, if we go back to the ancient Egyptians, they had an idea of what they called hell. And it was somewhere you passed through. After you died, you would pass through this area where you would have to atone for all that you did wrong in your life. And so there's that idea of this um, foreboding place. The Mesopotamians, they had the same kind of idea. Interestingly, most of the ideas of a place of eternal damnation were cold. The, uh, think of um, Dante's Ninth Circle of Hell, which is all ice. Milton talks about hell as being this very cold place. I totally buy that. <laughs> I don't like being cold. Um, but we see it. But in all places, what you see is it's a place you pass through. And so then we come to Christianity. Um, Origen, who is one of the church fathers from the first century. Um, well, let me back that up. From about the first to the fourth century, there's not a lot of discussion at the councils about hell. The discussions are who is Jesus Christ? How did he come into the world? Those sorts of things. You just don't see it in the record. Interestingly, you don't see a lot of depictions of hell in classical art from this time either. But guess what happens around the fourth and fifth century? Two things happen. One is Constantine comes to power, takes over the Roman Empire. He's going to make Christianity the one religion that unites them all. And he also wants to accrue power in other lands. And so as they go to take over the barbarians, they are also converting them. And they use the carrot and the stick. The carrot is heaven. The stick is hell. You start to see more of a discussion of hell because they are evangelizing so many people. Um, and so the other thing that happens around that time is St. Augustine is very invested in hell. <laughs> he very much believes that to be held accountable for our actions mean that some will be damned to eternal damnation. And Augustine's thought lasted all the way through Calvin. Um, it's really only in the 19th and 20th century that the church has started to talk widely about other theories of eschatology and what happens during that time. So for me, the, the doctrine of hell as this place where the damned go and burn forever, which we know we have the transition from the icy cold place to the hot place, right? Um, that has to do with the Old Testament in particular and Jesus mentioning Gehenna. So here's the one thing, not the one thing, one of the things I learned, which I think is fascinating. In the Old Testament, 
there is the Valley of Gehenna. It runs into the Kidron Valley. In the early parts of the um, Jewish people's heritage, children were sacrificed in the Valley of Gehenna, right? Uh, uh, so infants were sacrificed, small children. And so that became known as the Valley of the Damned, just this terrible, difficult place. It remained untouched as they grew out of the practice of child sacrifice. And then eventually becomes, by the time we get to Jesus's time, the town dump where everyone just dumps all of their stuff and then they set it on fire in order to break it down. Um, Jesus speaks of Gehenna in the Bible, but he doesn't speak of it in terms of eschatology necessarily. He speaks about the quality of life someone has when they don't come to believe in God's goodness. But we'll get around to the scriptural part of that. So we have that idea of hell. Um, so Augustine de Calvin, um, Puritans really love the idea of hell too um, and brought it into the Americas. Um, but again, we mostly see it in terms of evangelism, which I think is a huge mistake. Uh, it is also my like basic belief that people change through love um, and not fear. But who's to say? Um, we got a lot of Christians in the world, so I guess it worked at some point. I don't know. Um, so now what I want to get back to is when we look at scripture, there are two things that I think we can be absolutely sure of. The first one is that God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is omnipotent and omniscient. The second thing we can be sure of, and we see this over and over in the scripture, is that there are consequences to what we do. I don't know that I hold to the theory of universalism because it doesn't talk about judgment. Do you know what I mean? It just assumes that somehow everyone will be redeemed without any sort of judgment. I don't know that I can go there. Um, although I'm pretty darn close. Um, <laughs> but we have these two claims that we see over and over in scripture again. I think to be rooted in the scripture is to recognize that there is a claim of judgment that will be made. What does that judgment look like? It's described in different ways in the Bible. But the idea is that what we do matters and that there will come a time when we will be asked to um, speak to that as we stand before our Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, talks a lot about eschatology. And this is where I would say Paul is the closest thing to a universalist you're going to see in the Bible. Because Paul has all the, the phrases that you know, right? God works for the good, right, of humanity, for those who call on his name. There's no time limit on people calling God's name which is one of the ideas of hell, right? That you have to repent and believe before you die. That somehow there's this cutoff and you better be on the right side of it or you will be damned. The apostle Paul talks about the character of God as one who works for the good. And so he that permeates everything that he believes also. 
Another thing to remember is that when we talk about judgment, remember how I mentioned the theologian Karl Barth? He talked about a dialectical way of understanding God. So he believed God had perfect freedom and God used his perfect freedom and perfect love for humanity. Karl Barth also believes that God is perfect love and perfect justice. Justice would be an accountability, yes, that we had not behaved justly and there would be an accounting for that. But Karl Barth said that God's judgment is always um, in service to God's love is the way he put it. God's judgment operates in service of God's love and God's gracious will. And so you cannot speak of judgment without also speaking of love and how God would bring that into the world, even into eschatological theories. Karl Barth, for what it's worth, came right up to the line of universalism, said he believed more in God's love than anything else, did not cross that line, did not make a claim for that. Um, Shirley Guthrie, definitely a universalist. Oh, he kept it quiet in case he should get kicked out of the church. Um, but that was definitely his belief. Um, and you can see that, I think, in his writing. The idea behind all of this is that our faith should never be separated from our obedience. That to believe in Christ is to want to follow in the ways of Christ, to live our lives in ways that are holy, knowing that we will fail. I think one of the barriers for many theologians is that if we all are held accountable for our sins, who will stand? Who won't be damned when it comes to our sins? All right, so we have this idea of hell that comes from the Old Testament, yes? Which of the Gospels is the most Jewish in character? Matthew, okay? Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish in character. Matthew's Gospel is the one that starts with that long lineage that connects Jesus with King David and all the way back to Abraham, okay? It is no coincidence that we see more about judgment in Matthew than in any other gospel. Um, it does not mean that Jesus did not say these things. It means that every author makes choices. And the choices that Matthew makes, we have the parable of the sheep and the goats. Do you remember? What's the parable of the sheep and the goats? Oh, sheep. You want to be a sheep? You don't want to be a goat? This is my youngest daughter's favorite parable. And I used to think that's so sweet, but now I'm slightly troubled. Um, the parable of the sheep and the goats is Jesus teaching his disciples. And he says to them that there is a king. And there is this man who comes before the king. And the king is going to give him riches and all this goodness. And the person says, why? And the king says, because you fed me, you clothed me, you did all of these things. In the same way, the person who did not feed, did not clothe, did not do the things that they should, they will be sent away, think, I want to make sure I get the phrasing right, to eternal damnation thing. I should have looked that up. I don't think damnation is in the Bible, but oh, I know what it is. He says, 
the king says to the person, depart from me. Okay, depart from me. You are going to be sent away to punishment. Um, one, all, I think, um, all major Christian religions consider hell to be at its essence um, separation from God. Okay, separation from God. All Christian religions believe heaven to be unification with God, to be with God. I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr who said that we shouldn't worry about the furniture of heaven or the temperature of hell. <laughs> All that's out of our control. We should live our life that we have today. Um, but if those are our operating definitions, I don't know about you, but I have felt separated from God. And hell is a very good description of what that feels like. That makes that membrane between life and eschatology very thin. And I think that's more true to what's in John's gospel, who wants people to change the way they live now to live into the kingdom. God is loving judgment and judging love. That, again, is Bart right there. All right. So there are three emphases when we look at the final judgment. One is that all will be judged. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians we will pass through the fire of God's purifying love. That is a different thing than burning for eternity. Yes, <laughs> we will all pass through the fire of God's purifying love. That's how the apostle Paul saw it. The second thing that we know from all scripture, particularly from Romans 9 through 11, is that it is Christ who will be our judge. The one who walked with and in humanity the one who was crucified by humanity and the one who was resurrected again. That's who our judge will be. And I find that to be a great comfort to have our Lord and savior who came to us out of great love, that that will be the person who beholds me on the final day and judges who I am in God's purifying love. And the third thing is that, um, the criteria for judgment is always the self-giving love in Christ. If you want to know what the criteria for judgment is, read the Gospels and ask yourself, what did Jesus do? That's the criteria. And I always think of C.S. Lewis, who said, we humans, we like to compare ourselves to other humans while God is comparing us to Christ. That's certainly true. And I usually never compare myself to humans who are doing a better job than me. I just like to compare myself to the ones who are doing worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, another thing I think that gives me hope about um, the idea of judgment is that in the Bible, what is promised to us is God's reign will come. That there will come a day when the world will be as God wants it to be. That is promised to us. But references to final judgment or hell or damnation, that is always considered a warning that shouldn't be ignored. I will always put my trust in the promise. Um, and so I think it's important to realize, you know, I, there are competing truths all the time. Um, it is true that we sin. It is also true that we are saved. Salvation is the bigger truth. Um, it is true that God's reign will come again. Our behavior as judgment should be a warning to us. 
but we also have to remember the promise that God will come. Some theologians have said that hell is simply a human's choice to be apart from God's grace and to be isolated from others. That is the ultimate choice of humanity to decide if they want to walk in the ways of the kingdom of God or if they want to refuse it. And then there's something about us as God's created beings that God allows that choice to stand, whatever it is. It is self-destructive to resist the eternal love of God. What about, what questions do you have for me so far? So the Apostles' Creed, right? We are one of the traditions that says that Jesus descended into hell. Um, the idea is that in Jesus's death, that he experienced a true death, which is a separation from God. And that at that time, he descended into hell to offer salvation to those who had gone before. That's also, interestingly, in some traditions, called the hallowing of hell. And it is a comfort to know that even in the farthest reaches away from God, Christ is there. Right? So it's that idea of the hallowing of hell. For myself, I find it difficult to believe that our Lord and Savior would transcend the barrier of hell to reach people and redeem them. And yet everyone who doesn't believe before they die is just out of luck. Um, so, Which yes. So, say someone has a deathbed confession. And who am I to say that it is not genuine and authentic? I have to think the prospect of death and of meeting our maker would um, move us a lot. But there's still judgment. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the loving God? What is our loving God going to do with judgment at that time? A deathbed confession doesn't get you out of the judgment. Being followers of Jesus Christ doesn't necessarily get us out of the judgment. It may redeem us and enable us to be with God more fully, but I don't think it gets us out of the judgment. I don't think scripture says that. Other questions? I have a silly question that's always, <clears throat> I think about a lot. Um, when we are with our Heavenly Father, mm -hmm. do you believe that those in heaven have a way of communicating with those on earth? Is there anything scripture that makes that the case? Let me think just a second. Um... Bobby, I don't think there is anything scripturally 
I think that in our confessions, we talk about the great cloud of witnesses, that somehow the people who have gone before us have set this foundation for us to come afterwards. Um, I think the Catholic tradition probably has a stronger emphasis on angels and what that means. But in our tradition, I don't think, again, not an encyclopedia. <laughs> I can look that up for you. But yeah, off the top of my head, I can't think of any reference to that. What about in our faith? What, what role is angels in our so in our tradition, angels are considered um, celestial beings who support God. Satan, also called the Satan in Hebrew, is considered one who was a part of God's court and then departed from God's court to be the tempter. Okay, so this is all assuming uh, this is a um, prehistory right before we have the histories written down telling of what happened. And so that's the only place where we see angels. We don't have, again, anyone correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of a single place where we have the idea of people as angels. They serve God's purposes. They are usually a herald right, that tell us something that God is going to do. They are always messengers, um, especially in the New Testament. But, you know, it's Job where we have this idea of like the celestial council and Satan is sent away to tempt Job. Um, so that's one of the places where you see that. So what else? I think it's possible for a human being to live a life of doing good and loving and not believe in God. Yeah, Jesus says it. But what happens to them? Um, I don't know any more than I know what will happen to me. Um, but I do know that in one of the Gospels, Jesus says that there are righteous people. And he says it in a complimentary way. So the question for me always comes to, do I believe a loving God would turn that person away? And I don't personally. So I have a theory of how I think eschatology works, and I'm sure many of you have heard it, but I, it helps me to think in terms of um, images. And so many of you know, uh, my grandfather was in the 82nd Airborne in the Second World War, and after um, VE Day, um, the 82nd Airborne was called to liberate a very small concentration camp in this small town um, in Germany. And you can Wikipedia this, <laughs> the Wobeling concentration camp. And so he said that their job was to come in and figure out who was living and who was dead. There were bodies stacked everywhere. And he said they were all gray and you didn't know who was living and who was not. And so they had seen a lot of atrocities in the war, but it was their first time in a camp. And so the soldiers are dumbfounded and despairing. And so the chaplain of the 82nd Airborne said, there was a town surrounding this camp, said, go and get every townsperson and bring them here. And he made, the soldiers made every townsperson walk through that camp. 
And then he gathered them at the end and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but again, the actual text is on good old Wikipedia. But he said, um, while you were eating and sleeping and going to work, this is what you let happen less than a mountain. And then he sent them home. I think there will come a day when I stand before God and God will show me what I missed and how I strayed. And I think it will be painful, but I think it will also purify me. And then I believe God will say, but come on in anyway, because God loves and God is gracious. So that's my best, my best thought of how that might work. But I will tell you, I don't know about you, but I wake up every day and I'm counting on the grace of God, like counting on it. I make so many mistakes. I fail in so many ways that I don't have any other choice but to count on the grace of God over and over again. But I think everyone agrees from the biblical witness that God is just, and we will have to answer for that, that human beings are sinful and it infiltrates everything we do. The argument is, is atonement going to be open for everyone or is it limited? From about the fourth century, all the way through Calvin into the Protestant movement, they all believe there was limited atonement. That if you did not do it, you did not make your profession of faith before you died, you were out of love. That is changing. Shirley Guthrie for one, Daniel Yori for another. Most theologians today write with an eye to God's love more than that. And I find it hard to believe that the character of God, who is so loving and gracious, would shut the door. Right? Would shut the door. I find that hard to believe. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what Paul talked about in a lot of ways in that kind of purifying love, that to be the people God has created us to be, we will have to be purified in some way from our sin. Have you ever had the experience of hurting someone you love very much and you have to walk around knowing the hurt you caused? That's painful. I imagine it would be like that times all the people I've heard in this morning. And that will be painful. And I am banking on the fact that the Lord God will then say, but come on in anyway. I think that is the story of the prodigal son. Yes. Um, and I think in that we also see that hell is a condition that the younger son is living in. Cut off from his father. Cut off from community. He has used his freedom and ended up in hell. And when he comes home, it is the father who welcomes him home. And the older brother, he's limited atonement. The older brother's like, look, I've been believing all this time. That's not really fair. And thankfully, I don't, God is just, but I don't see him overly concerned with fairness. Yes. Coming from Jalen. Okay, so this is what's difficult for me, right? Because 
I only know mine. So my grandmother, who is, you know, was as missionary Baptist as they come, wanted to know what I learned about Satan in seminary. And I was like, not a thing. <laughs> I mean, we learned about it in the context of like Job and that sort of thing. But like I didn't take a class in Satan. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and if I did, I would be guessing and speaking out of ignorance. So I think I'm just going to say I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. So the person who grows up in the Hindu tradition who may call on one of their many gods in faith. Is that person rejected from God's sight? I don't know. But again, I'm leaning hard on God's love and grace. I, I don't know if you know, but I came to faith as an adult. Um, I didn't go to church growing up, except for with my grandparents, um, who made sure every weekend we were with them that we went and we lived with them for about a year. So even though I don't consider myself growing up in the church, their roots are pretty deep. Um, but when I came to faith at 28, when I was having this experience of wanting to know who God was, one of the things that filtered across my mind um, was, what if I am being called to be another religion, right? What if I should be Hindu or Buddhist? And where I landed on that was, it wasn't Buddhism that was haunting my every thought, it was Jesus Christ. Right. It's and maybe it's because it was the tradition I was raised in. I don't know. But I know for me, that's what I was being called to struggle with. And I did. It. So. So to your on the flip side, mm -hmm. there's maybe not a hell. OK. Yep. But there is a heaven that's promised us because God said there was that told us. That there were there wasn't such a place in so we do believe in the place of heaven we believe in heaven again i don't know about the furniture in heaven yeah, yeah. you know what i mean i don't know what it looks like but i do believe that the promise of christ is that one if we live our life in the way of christ we will experience a bit of that heaven here on earth do i believe and is it promised that for believers in particular, we will be with God and that that will be heaven? Yes. Yeah. But again, I don't know that it's a place. You know what I mean? Like up there, else down there. I don't, I don't know. So. Say they're in a better place. Because language fails us, because it's the only way to talk about those eschatological things that come at the end time. Language is very imperfect when we talk about things that are conjecture. Um, and so I think the reason we do that is because it's one way to kind of get at the idea of what it means to be with God. We don't use the language in time, but we do believe that there will come a day that God and Christ will return and redeem the whole world. 
I can't imagine it's going to happen in our time. And I think until then we're called to work for that day. But yeah, uh, that was one of the first things that um, <laughs> when I went to seminary, I had my first theology class and the professor says, you know, our doctrine is that there will be a second coming. And I was like, wait, really? I thought people just talked about that. You know what I mean? I was like, I didn't. But the more I think of it, I do believe that there will come a day when God's love will permeate all and we will be with God. I'm counting on it anyway, hoping for it. And at darkest times in my life, I do derive comfort from that. Well, in each of the benefit of our faith journey, when you talk about how Thomas, you talk about maybe something I didn't think about. Uh, should we be making a list right now so that we're going to be ready to honor yeah. and just think what we have done uh, to be more connected to say, yes, we will. It's a hard thing, right? Because it's not a checklist because we'll never finish it. We are called to live out the character and love of Christ in the world. And I fail. And I will also say our belief is that when we succeed, that's the work of the Holy Spirit through us. Our belief in the Reformed tradition is that we are all sinful. And any good that is worked through humanity is because of God's grace. That on our own, if humanity were left to its own devices, our concern for self over others would damn us. Um, our concern for more instead of sharing would damn us. Um, and so maybe at the end of the day, I shouldn't be surprised I failed so much. Maybe I should be surprised if there was any grace in there at all and um, anything turned out well. I don't know. Other questions, thoughts? Yes, Roy. In the, in the Bible, you know, it talks a lot, a lot, you know, God the Father and us as the children uh, and uh, as parents, there, there's practically nothing your child won't do that you will eventually forget them. Mm -hmm. How does that play into the Well, I think that's one of the reasons why we have that language, why God is Father. Because we do have this overwhelming love for our children. The difference is that we aren't perfectly just. Um, and so we often don't hold them to the same standard. You know what I mean? So I might be willing to let slide some elements of my child's character or misdeeds out of my love for them. And maybe God is the same. But we do know that God sees all and holds us accountable for it. So, I don't know. I like to think that God is a parent like I am, like totally permissive, and I just love them. And not so much like Brian, who's like, I'm bringing the hammer. <laughs> I'm bringing the hammer. He doesn't do it often, but. <laughs> um, and again, I think, I think it's important maybe to ask the person who is teaching you or preaching you kind of what their base belief is. I prayed for a calling in my life, and my calling was the experience I had was that I went to talk to people about God's love for them, because that is the thing that has changed my life. We could take the pastor from my grandparents' church, and he will have a different conviction, right? 
Um, but that's what you get out of this. Um, and that's where my humanity is lived out. It does help to look at what those who have gone before have said. So I think we have to also think about when I was a new Christian and we were at first Pres in Athens, I was in a Sunday school class once and there was a professor from the university who was teaching us and they taught us about the theory of universalism. And it was taught, this is one theory that, you know, the belief is that even when people die, they will be given an opportunity to claim faith in Christ and then everyone will accept it and all will be redeemed. And this lovely woman stood up and slammed her Bible down and said, whatever happened to hell? And then left the room in tears. Now, for my first thought was, wow, I didn't know people were going to mess in hell. <laughs> but I think what that issue was, right, from a pastoral perspective, is that she had probably made difficult choices in her life. That she was hoping pleased God. She turned from ways that might have been more sinful. And what she heard is that nothing matters, that everyone will get in. Again, we have to believe in some sort of judgment. It is deeply biblical. Um, and that's the one thing for me that, um, that I think just the idea of everyone scooting in. This is, although some universalists take the idea that um, there will also be judgment and then again, we'll be welcomed in. But the theory as it's written by a few scholars, it's very popular in the Unitarian Church, um, does not talk about that element of judgment. Where are we? All right, what else? Yes? What about that one obscure passage in Matthew that talks about uh, blaspheming the Holy yeah. Spirit? It's also in Mark, but not the same. I'm not sure I understand the question, though. So, is there an unforgivable sin that would create damnation that would always separate them from God? There is an unforgivable... So, Jesus says that that's an unforgivable sin. Um, but does he say in the passage that it automatically leads to eternal damnation? No. He doesn't right. He just says it's an unforgivable sin. But what you're talking about today is Hold up a second. What have I said that leads to? I didn't understand your question. If there's a judgment, uh huh. Right? Grace of God is sufficient, and that passage would maybe uh, the grace of God. That there is a limit yep. to that. Yes, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think a lot of times when we say things like judgment or hell, we think we know what that means. I don't know that I do. You know what I mean? Um, we will be judged. To me, that means that I will have to give an accounting for the choices that I've made and how I've failed. Um, but it may be something else. I don't know. What does that look like to God? But yes, that would run counter to the argument that all would be redeemed. Certainly. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry. I was uh, thinking about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the, um, I, I lived on the Arsenal for 30 years. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember first time I lived in the South, my folks from Western New York, far land in Western New York. And everyone was asking whether I was safe. I very confused by that. And I remember going home and, and asking my mom, what is this thing about being safe? And I distinctly remember my mom being a Presbyterian, very soft spoken. And she said, Oh, don't be ridiculous. You were baptized today. <laughs> well, in the Reformed tradition, the answer to that is on the cross. On the cross, we were all saved and redeemed for those who believe and want to be a part of that blessing. Um, having said that, I was baptized in a creek. <laughs> I mean, you know, so that was, that was my grandparents' tradition, and it means a lot to me. Um, but yeah, I do feel like, and I've said this before, that all theology is a splitting of hairs. And our calling is to focus on what we do know, which is love and care and forgiveness and all of those things for others. And that's enough for a lifetime. It's enough for a lifetime to focus on instead of, um, you know, I'm not going to write John Calvin's Institutes where I can split every little thing. It almost seems in a way that the study of eschatology is really just like the practice of our own, like kneeling in our own pride. Like our own, like, what, like, I'm doing good, they're not, they're going to be judged X way versus it's like, it's really just a kneeling in of our own need to know everything. Well, it's so, yes. And it's, you know, so the thing I do, one of the things that Calvin said that I liked, right, is that the more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves. The more we know about ourselves, the more we know about God. Um, When we talk about the doctrine of eschatology, we're really talking about what we believe, right? It's the meaning that we make. So I'm all, let's, it's going to be fine. God loves us, right? And um, there may be others who have a different. But I do think that we are united in the person of Jesus Christ. And probably um, those who are more concerned about a salvation date are just as needed for the kingdom as me who thinks that it happened on the cross and I'm called to live now, right? It takes all of that diversity of opinion. God is not threatened by diversity. God created all that diversity. So... That's all I got. This was um, imperfect, right? Uh, oh, there was something I want to tell you. I forgot it. Oh, well. Oh, what does the Apostles' Creed say? We believe in the resurrection of the body. There is an idea that our bodies, that we will be embodied creatures in whatever that kingdom looks like. Um, Paul was very specific about this that God created us and all of the God's creation is good. And so in some way we will be embodied in heaven. Um, and that's not, I don't think a bad thing, right? But it is something that we generally tend to be that it'll just be our spirit that goes on. That's also runs counter to the tr- Christian tradition um, that we will be embodied in whatever comes after this. Yes, I'm hoping like the bad knee goes and uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. I hope so. All right, my friends, next week, um, I'm trying to, you know, 
convince Brett to come do Revelation because he knows a lot more about it than me, but he's not biting. And when I asked him, he said, I don't know how you're going to do that. So I guess that was a no. But next week, we'll talk about the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature. And actually, that book has a lot of the language that people use for hell. So you'll see that in there. So come on back and uh, we'll see what we can do. Thanks.